The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Thank you again for joining us this morning as Drew prayed. And um, maybe if you're just joining with us or you're not familiar with our church, uh, you aren't aware of the passing of Bill O'Grady. I want to take a moment, just remember him. Um, Bill was a good friend, um, a deacon in our church. Treated everybody like family, and um, really just a vital, vital person in in the lives of everybody who knew him. And so I do appreciate you kind of coping with us as we as we cope with this loss. But I, there's so many ways I've been struggling with this passage this week, and even the prior week before knowing um, Bill was going to pass this Wednesday. Of course, is it's just not a lot of. Um, may not be a lot of happiness in this passage, but in so many ways, Bill exemplifies what Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6 have to say about how we live a life that's satisfied. Bill was a man um, that was blessed in many ways. Um, he was very successful at his business. He raised a family very well, loved his wife very well, taught those around him to do those things, encouraged us in the Lord, reached out often, checked in on us, and, and just lived a happy life by all accounts, by all, by all measures that we, we could see. <laughs> and so I think as we're going through this passage today, uh, he's on my mind. Um, and I, I had no idea um, his death was going to affect me in this way. I think it's because I really had no idea until I started thinking about it that his life had affected me in such a deep way. But I'm going to miss him, um, do miss him. Alex and I have had so many conversations this week about just the way he interacted with us and the way he encouraged us. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank God for the time we had with him. Gracious Father, we do thank you for our friend Bill. We thank you for the love that he showed to each of us, Lord. We thank you for his generous heart. It's safe to say that this uh, live stream, this recording, this service, Lord, this church uh, would not be happening, would not exist today without his generosity, his vision for what you could do in Manchester, his willingness to help get this church plant going and commit time week after week to see it succeed, to see you glorified, to see you honored. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, I pray that we would take from it truths, Lord, that we know Bill held dear to his heart, but God, that you have just as real for us. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name, amen. So as a reminder, or for those of you who didn't join with us last week, or haven't joined with us uh, for some of this series, Ecclesiastes is kind of a deep and dark and mysterious book. It's not an easy book to read. Um, it, it, it speaks to truths about life that can be hard to grapple with. It talks, especially in the first 
portion of the book that we've already been through a lot about um, the meaninglessness and the, the, the nature of life that just makes it so seem so um, vacuous and, and, and really just the fact that there's so much of life that, that we concern, our, concern ourselves with that in the, in the long run of things don't matter. But the message of Ecclesiastes isn't all of life is meaningless and nothing matters. In fact, it's because of God, the source of all meaning, goodness, and beauty, that in living the life we are given, absolutely everything matters. Having shown us that all things in life under the sun, apart from God, are vanity, the preacher now moves on in these next several chapters to speak to the hardships of life in a fallen world and provides us with some practical advice for dealing with them. Last week, Dave walked us so well through the first part of chapter 5 and showed us that because God is holy and he is worthy of reverence and worship, because of that, how we approach him matters, and it matters a lot. This week, in the preceding weeks, we're going to zoom in a little bit, and we're going to see that how we think about very specific topics also matter. And this week, it happens to be wealth, money. I'm not going to read the passage at the beginning of it. Um, it's Ephesians 5, 8 through 6, 12. It, 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 just for sake of time, and because we're not going to follow it in any um, certain order, I'm not going to read it at the beginning, but we will read each part as, um, as we go to discuss it. it. It's Hebrew poetry, so it tends to do this thing where it starts off, climaxes in the middle, and then falls off at the end. And in our American minds, it, it gets really unsatisfying when you read through a climax and then you're back down to where you started, in a sense. So we're going we're gonna to take that middle portion and put it at the end be helpful to think of it kind of like flying in a plane. So we're going to do a 30,000-foot 30 flyover of the topic of wealth, of the idea of wealth, and, and see in general what the preacher has to say about it. We're then going to drop altitude to see two very specific accounts, two case studies of men who had wealth and did not utilize it correctly. But finally, we are going to land the plane in a place of joy. And the main point, the proposition I want to make to you today is that satisfaction comes not from what we earn, but from what we enjoy or who we enjoy. So the very first point that we're going to look at, no money or more money, we all have problems. No money or more money, we have problems. Let's start in chapter 5, verse 8. I'm going to read through verse 12, and then I'm going to drop down to chapter 6, verse 7 through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. 
And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? But sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then 6, 7 through 9, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after winds. We come to this passage with a basic understanding of the world. I think that we all share. And it's a world that says more wealth is better. And the answer to most of our challenges is actually quite simple. If we're poor and we find ourselves in a tight situation or things are tight, we don't have what we feel we need to survive or get to where we want to be. What is our solution? Well, it's more money to pay off the bills or purchase what we need to sustain life. Likewise, if we're stable, or wealth is abundant around us, but we're dissatisfied, what's the answer? The solution must be we need more. It's true, just like the great theologian, the notorious B.I.G. said, more money, more problems. I'm not going to say it the way he said it. I'm not that cool. But no money is also a problem. And the preacher is going to address the ways that we hope wealth will solve our dissatisfaction. And there's three of those in this passage. The first thing that we do, oftentimes, when we feel like we don't have what we need or what we deserve or what we want, is we look to a system that can't be fixed. Let's look back at verses 8 through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. It's a strange passage. And I think it speaks a lot into what is happening in our current events and, and the things going on around us and the things that we're even a part of today. And I want to speak about these things carefully, but I do want to point to the truth that oftentimes when we run into an issue or a problem or a hardship, that the first thing we do is to look outside of ourselves and find out what the problem is. We look to a system when we don't succeed, we tend to take a look at the relative justice or lack of justice that exists in a particular system that we find ourselves in. When we're not succeeding or we believe that we should have more, we are quick to look outside ourselves to the system that we find ourselves in. And the truth that Scripture is teaching us here, and I know the verses read a little funny, but it's not necessarily saying higher official higher official, higher official checks and balances, what these men are doing, the, the system that we find ourselves in is corrupt from the floor to the ceiling. It's tainted. And it's true that government is an institution ordained by God, and it's set by God. And in many ways, it's, it can be a gift from God. But because it is given to men, administered by men, it gets ruined. Because all governments are executed by sinful people. 
Each of, the, each of them are marked by various amounts of corruption, which favors some over others. Every system of government faces this on earth. Every system of government. And the, and the preacher says, don't be surprised. Do not be amazed at the matter. Don't be surprised when the economic and governmental structures of the world do not lend themselves to the justice of the poor. Why? Because we're greedy. And when greed is married to power, the child is economic injustice. The preacher is literally calling out the inherent injustice of the bureaucratic system. There's layers and layers of high-ranking officials all looking out for themselves and their colleagues. So when we read there's a high official and a higher over him and a higher over them, the preacher is not saying, don't worry, the government's got it. He's saying they're all looking to make sure they get their cut. But there's a caveat here as well. We do not need to think that extreme libertarianism or anarchy is necessarily always the answer either. The loss that comes from imperfect, corrupt, governmental economic systems is outweighed in the second verse by the gain that comes from clear leadership from one who understands the call to cultivate what we have. Do you see that? This is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What he's saying is that in all of the injustice that we can face in a system where the few may gain on the backs of the many, we're called to satisfaction knowing that God has worked these things out. So even the most corrupt person or maybe just the highest person in this system of corruption has to eat and so we eat as well. This is not to expect defeat or to disengage, but to be realistic about the challenges that we face in the pursuit of wealth at every level. If wealth is your driver and you are poor, those with power and wealth will stand in your way. And the preacher says, don't be amazed by that. But don't be amazed does not mean don't do anything. So while we're not amazed that a sinful world would sin, in other words, we should not be shocked at the presence of racism, oppression, injustice. We should be no less sickened by its pervasiveness. While we may not be shocked, we should still react appropriately. It's interesting that the word province is used in verse 8 because it has a specific meaning. Uh, the word could have been place, it could have been lands, it could have been country, but he uses province. The word literally means a place of jurisdiction or a place of justice. The preacher is saying, don't be surprised when a place with the systems for justice behave unjustly. But the church isn't a place that merely has systems for justice. That would be a government. The church is a people that has been led to the well of justice, and we've been led to drink deeply from it. We have felt the deepest form of justice that there is to feel, 
and the deepest form of injustice as well. We can show and enact true justice on the basis of the most heinous act of injustice that has ever been perpetrated, the death of Christ. But his death and our subsequent invitation to life carries with it the call of the greatest commandment, and that is to love our neighbors. And so we don't need to be silent in our satisfaction. We can speak out from a satisfied place, knowing that we live in this balancing act of calling out justice, or injustice rather, in the systems around us and finding satisfaction with where God has us. Knowing that any amount of money will not satisfy our cries for justice. But secondly, we also, we don't just look to the system around us. We, we seek satisfaction, frankly, in places that it can't be found. He who loves money, is verse 10, will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats a little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What this passage is saying is whether you're down on your luck this morning and hoping to move up, or you're actually doing really well, either way, you're not satisfied with what you have. But the answer to our dissatisfaction is not to pursue more of the thing that's not satisfying us. It's not to pursue wealth. Because in doing so, you are simply loving more and more something that cannot love you back. The author tells us that the accumulation of wealth bring, the accumulation of wealth does not bring satisfaction, but rather accomplishes the opposite. The more wealth that you have, the more wealth you need to be satisfied, the more help you need, the more people you hire, the more work you have to do to make sure the wealth is being kept and increased, and you literally work to get stuff that you can never enjoy. And that's the picture that's being painted in this passage. And it's something that runs through, it's a strand that runs through the entire passage. Solomon in 1 Kings 4 has this experience. He had tons of people working with him for him. So there's actually this trickle-down effect of his wealth spilling down to those around him. But there's also a growing entourage of hangers-on from friends he never knew he had. And that's what happens. You get wealthy, and all you can do is watch others consume it. The end of the verse, it references sleep. It says that the wealthy man, he's literally suffering from this form of acute overabundance, and he cannot sleep. He's sick to his stomach. His affluence is so great. And we get this false sense that's being corrected that a desire for greater wealth and possessions is not a greater sense of security. You think if you have a bigger bank account that somehow you rest easier. Or more things, you rest easier. But we were made to strive and work. So when you've accumulated so much wealth, you no longer need to strive to survive. 
You come to places where you're so consumed with luxury, our stomach is full, but it does not satisfy. Your life is so leisurely that you do not get to experience deep sleep or rest. I have to say, I admire the people in our church that, that get up early in the morning and go do back-breaking labor <laughs> through their whole day. I, I think John Laughlin comes to mind. Joe Beachy, I know you guys are up early out there cutting down trees or running machines. And I, I, most of my day revolves around sitting in a meeting and drinking coffee. And then talking to clients and then drinking some more coffee and then doing some compliance work and then drinking some more coffee and then filing paperwork and drinking coffee. There's a lot of drinking and sitting. Coffee, drinking coffee and sitting. And it leaves me, it leaves me restless sometimes. Alex will tell you that when she goes to bed at 10 o'clock after being home, um, and she works from home, but she's up and she's moving around the house and taking care of things around the house while she's at work, and she's, she's ready to go down at 10 o'clock. I'm like, whew, till 12. Because just sitting and drinking coffee and sitting and drinking coffee all day. And it leaves me restless. For the rich, there is the added stress about, of worrying about their stuff. Those who work physically hard jobs, especially with limited responsibility, they tend to rest well because they poured into the work they're poured in the work they're doing, even if it is a little gain or reward, that he's still able to get moments of rest. So we must be satisfied with the good gifts God has given us as the labor in these verses. His work may not be glamorous, but he goes to bed satisfied with what he has and what he's done. And I probably should have said this earlier in the passage, but we are so outside of, of this, this realm, this, this economy that this verse is addressing. Every single one of us is the rich man in this chapter. The amount of wealth that we have today, even the poorest among us, vast, compares vastly to even what the wealthy man would have had access to in this passage. So if some of these things aren't connecting, like I'm calling out guys who work hard all day, I'm not calling them poor. Uh, I'm just saying that there's satisfaction in their work that may not be found in someone who just sits around all day for their job. Not saying that they're not doing it. I do work very hard. But there's a difference there. And the sleep that is promised to those who are just satisfied with the work that they're doing, they're not going to bed restless. They're going to bed knowing that they did this hard day's work and they earned their keep. It's something to be admired. Thirdly, we work harder at a job that can't be completed. Look at verse 7 through 9 in chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows, nothing, who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. We live on these perpetual treadmills where we work for our own appetites but are never satisfied. And it's because even... When what we desire, sorry, it's because even when what we desire endlessly changes, so once we've acquired something, we have to shift our gaze to something else. We have these wandering appetites. The illustration that came to mind would, super hypothetical, 
I can't afford another one of these. But if I wanted to buy a kayak, uh, and I went to Alex and said, hey, I'm going to work five hours of overtime this week to ensure I can get this kayak. I have one. Maybe I want to buy one for her. And I work those five hours. And as I'm working those five hours, it's dawning on me that, you know, if I do a five hours more, maybe the next week, that kayak might become a boat with an outboard motor. And, and the next week, I do an additional five hours on top of that. So now I'm 10 hours of overtime or whatever it is. You know, maybe, maybe I am on a smaller boat with like an inboard motor. But then, then it can become a speedboat. And before I know it, I'm 90 years old working my 15 hours of overtime a week still because the yacht's around the corner. I never bought the kayak in the first place. That's the picture being painted here, is that we have this ever-changing appetite, and we work, and we work, and we work, and we work, and we work to accomplish or to get the thing that we want. And before long, we've worked so long, we never enjoyed it in the first place. Verse 9 talks about it like striving after wind. You're working for something you'll never be able to grasp. When all you're doing is for yourself, you'll never be satisfied. When we pursue our place, sorry, when we pursue or place our hope in wealth, satisfaction does not come with that. And none of this is to say that things, that buying a kayak is wrong or buying a boat of any kind is wrong or wanting those things is wrong. It is building our life around those desires and placing all of our satisfaction and all of our hopes in gaining these things. The question has to be asked, when you have acted with the most selfishness, has it led to greater satisfaction? Has it led to greater satisfaction? Not only whether we have no money or more money do we have problems, but whether we have no money or more money we leave a legacy. So we're going to drop the altitude in our plane down here a little bit. And we're going to look at these two detailed accounts. 5, 13 through 17, 6, 1 through 6. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in so much vexation and sickness and anger. And this is the second case study. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, chapter 6, 1 through 6. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes into vanity and it goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. 
Moreover, it has not seen the Son or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet not enjoy, yet enjoy no good thing, do not all go to one place? The word evil being used here, it's used in the same way we might call a hurricane evil. These aren't evil actions as much as they're evil occasions. They're tragedies. And the preacher's sick to his stomach considering them. It's actually quite literally translated sickening evil or sickening tragedy. And the the preacher uses this word or phrase four times. He's showing us that our insatiable desire for wealth has an impact that extends beyond us. It's an aggressive cancer that eats away your body from the inside out and spreads to impact those around you. It's a specific evil that we don't often consider. That is living life without enjoyment. Wealth is not evil, but hoping in it, living for it, it's evil. And it's, it's tragic to not enjoy life. It's tragic. So the first one, in, in verse 13 through 17, we have the father who, lost, who had it all and lost it all. I'm going to hit these pretty quickly. We have a father who did not use his wealth to cultivate a legacy to bless others, or to bless others, rather. He did not use it to cultivate a legacy for his children, for his family, or to bless others. He didn't concern himself with ensuring the safety and care of his family. He did not see himself as blessed to bless others. He held it all close and close and closed-fisted. He would rather risk all of his wealth for just a little bit more than to use what he had for good. Peter, when we were when we were talking about this, reminded me of the old saying, a bird in hand is better than two in the bush. And that's what it is. As you're letting go of that one bird to see if you can grab two more, and eventually you ultimately lose all three of them. We have to be learned, or we have to learn to be satisfied with what God sees fit to give us. It goes, sim- it goes beyond simple financial matters. Your legacy, what you leave behind, how your family and friends and church perceive you to be, that matters. He had his entire life and one son to steward and show, son, this is what it means to be a man who cares for his family, who cares for those around him. This is how we deal with loss or even failure. He could have followed the example of Job in chapter one, where he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of stewarding what he had wisely, He lost it all on a bad venture. He spent his days in vexation. He was annoyed. He was frustrated. He was worried. In sickness and darkness and anger. When your hope is in wealth, when it's lost, the consequences are not just economic, they're spiritual. It's easy for us to see how someone who had it and lost it all could be bitter in life. So we ask the question, well, what if he didn't lose it all? What if he was somehow able to keep it all? Well, we're given another example in order to consider what that might look like. We have the father in, ver- in chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, who had it all but didn't enjoy any of it. The second man had it all, not only in wealth and possession, but in really every sphere imaginable. Wealth, possessions, honor. He had a hundred children and long life, and he didn't enjoy any of them. But if his problem isn't bitterness from loss, 
or lacking, then what is it? Well, he doesn't have satisfaction and enjoyment in any of the numerous blessing and any of the numerous blessings that he already has. And the the author says this is also just the sickening tragedy. Stuff, even great stuff, good stuff without enjoyment is worthless vanity. We believe wrongly that if we had merely had all our desires, we'd somehow magically be joyful and content. Not unless our desire is directed properly. He has everything anyone could ever want of the Son that we think would satisfy us. Every single one of us would sign up for this life that he had. Be warned, it's possible to possess everything, but without joy, you have nothing. Why? Well, specifically, it says his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He lacks the ability and power to enjoy what he's been given. It's incredibly sad. Additionally, he apparently is so consumed with his own desires, he either isn't willing or able to pour into or love his kids in a way that they would want to honor him. When he passes, there's no one to care enough to even bury him. This example does uses a really dark analogy, um, and I hesitate to even get into the verses. But I, very quickly, I, I want to know that I want you to know that I am I am speaking to this. I don't know, especially with um, the women, but maybe the men as well in the church are holding on to in themselves who have experienced this um, type of loss. Just know that in sharing it, it's it's fresh. It's a fresh tragedy, tragedy for Alex and I to have experienced. It's, it's a recent one. In fact, I was looking through um, text messages from Bill, and the last text messages he had were encouraging me through this very matter. But the preacher says that a man who cannot enjoy life, it's better that he was miscarried or stillborn. And he stretches that analogy out to say that if you live... I think it said 2,000 years. If you have 2,000 years with everything that you could possibly imagine, everything that you think would satisfy the desires of your heart, and you don't take the time to enjoy it or steward it or to leave a legacy that your kids will want to follow, or the people around you will appreciate, if you don't live in light of that, because God does give those things, he does give these possessions to good people who can do these things. But if you don't, your life is worse than a life that never really started in the first place. Because while that may pass in darkness, it passes peacefully, and I love verse 5. It passes into rest. And it passes into a rest that the person who lives an unsatisfied life is never going to experience. The point is to drill down further. Better to not have a name, to be unknown with no legacy, than to be known as the richest, most honored man in the world but to have a joyless legacy. Not enjoying life 
we have, not enjoying the life we have, and leaving a legacy that doesn't lead to greater joy and life for others is a poorly stewardless and meaninglessly tragic life. For a happy, meaningful life, we must learn to find true joy, and that is only found in the satisfaction we have in Christ. Lastly, in closing, and thank you for your patience. No money or more money. It's God who gives joy. Let's land this plane in joy. Verse 18 through 20 verses of chapter 5 and verse 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for, all, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. that he is not able to dispute with one who's stronger than he. The words, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We have two things here. First, we have a truth that's surrounded by darkness. There's a lot of dissatisfaction and darkness that surrounds the bright truth of these verses. Life under the sun, it has injustice. It has dissatisfaction. It has loss. It has wandering appetites. Yet there is still great good. Wealth, possessions, honor, many children, and desires all fulfilled. They're all good. But on their own, there's something incredibly significant missing, that leads them to be joyless and meaningless. These verses have a form of joy four times. They have the word gift or given four times. And every time each of these is mentioned, you find it drawn back to God as the source. God is a wealthy and generous giver. God gives us all the days that we have under the sun. Shorter or longer, the span of our lives is all short in comparison to eternity. Each of our lives and the days in them are gifts from God. God gives wealth and possession and power and influence as he sees fit. If you have wealth, if you have good things, if you have a position of power and influence where you're able to lead, manage, or influence others, that's a gift from God that you should steward well. It means he wants you to enjoy what you have to steward and bless others even if you don't have much. God gives the ability to rejoice in our toil. Yes, it's going to be hard and difficult. God says, but I am still able to give you joy when you accept where I have you and what I've called you to do. It is for your joy. What I have called you to do is for your joy. God gives us a fullness of joy that occupies our hearts. That's not a small thing. Yes, you'll have some good, some bad, some blah days. 
But when you're living in light of God beyond the sun, you will be so preoccupied with what he's given you to do that you won't have time to lament what isn't or what was. For the man who is given the good things from God and given the ability to enjoy them, his life doesn't seem long. In fact, he loses track of time because he's so preoccupied enjoying the things that God has given him to do and enjoy. But not only is, there's this, 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 is this truth surrounded by darkness, there's another truth, rather, there's a darkness that's surrounded by truth. There's a truth that surrounds our darkness. And that's in verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of life, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. You can say, but I don't understand this joy. I don't feel it or experience it. And I would say to you, there can be real darkness. And that's real. There's a real darkness to be experienced. And that's not to be set aside or looked over or condemned. (laughs) But the preacher does put forth the sovereignty of God as the ultimate cause of our current situation. And we might find ourselves utterly dissatisfied with what <clears throat> utterly dissatisfied with what that situation is. And I want to ask us, and I want to include myself in this, but I'm going to ask you to do something when you inevitably meet that darkness this week. And then can you ask yourself just two questions? The first one's a little hard-hitting. What makes us think in our short life, what makes me think in my short life that I will learn enough to know exactly what's best for me? That's the question posed in the verse. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? What makes me think that in my short life, I will learn enough to know exactly what's best for me? In question two, hopefully a little bit more hopeful for you. Who better to trust with my life experiences than the all-knowing, all-encompassing creator God who seeks to take the evil of the world and work it for my good? When this truth seems completely surrounded by darkness for you this week, can you ask yourself those questions and rest on the fact that God knows what he's doing in light of his character when we meet dissatisfaction in our lives, that we should not come to dispute with God, but to surrender to him. He knows our joylessness comes from our disconnection from him. He knows our sin means we live live in and leave legacies of rebellion and death. But in Jesus, we trade in our legacy of joyless greed that warrants our death. And Jesus takes it and he nails it with himself on the cross in our place. And in his resurrection, he gives us his saving legacy of perfect stewardship, perfect contentment, and perfect joy. So daily, we can rest and work in peace. Our true and lasting joy comes not in the things that we seek to gain or the things that we seek to earn or the things that we seek to accomplish or surround ourselves in, but our true and lasting joy in life comes when we trust Jesus for our satisfaction. Thank you 
for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.